The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This has become the most important charge, really, felony charge that they've used in the January 6th cases. Uh, It's called corruptly obstructing an official proceeding. And right now we've got more than 760 people charged in federal court for crimes arising out of January 6th and more than 280 of them are charged with this offense. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 15th, 2022. It's been an eventful week in the Department of Criminal Cases arising out of January 6th. We had the first jury verdict convicting an alleged one-sixth perpetrator. We had an Oath Keeper guilty plea for seditious conspiracy. We had the indictment of the head of the Proud Boys. We had a judge for the first time rejecting the lead charge the government has used in a whole lot of criminal cases arising out of the Capitol insurrection. We thought it was a good time to catch up with Roger Parloff, who has been covering 1-6 criminal matters for lawfare. He joined me and a construction crew in the virtual jungle studio to discuss the news of the last couple weeks. It's a wide-ranging conversation. We cover a lot of ground, focusing particularly on Judge Carl Nichols' controversial ruling about the availability of an obstruction prosecution to the government. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 15th, a 1-6 check-in with Roger Parloff. So, Roger... Let's start with the conviction last week of uh, Mr. Reffitt. This is the first jury trial in a January 6th case. You wrote a considerable curtain raiser on it. The curtain wasn't up for very long. Uh, Tell us about what happened. Yes, the uh, evidence came in as expected, and he was convicted in less than four hours, some have said close to three hours, and there was just a lot of evidence, a lot of digital evidence. Um, There were uh, video clips of the, I guess I don't have to say alleged crime anymore, from 10 different cameras. There were um, uh, excerpts of uh, audio, basically confessions that his 
son had recorded covertly on his own uh, cell phone. And then uh, Guy Reffitt, after he got back, the, the confessions were after the event, of course. And then uh, after the defendant got back from Washington, he also did a Zoom call with several militia members, um, fellow militia members. He was a member of the Texas Three Percenters and uh, recounted uh, the crimes he had committed and some additional crimes he wanted to commit. So I don't know if I've ever seen as much. Uh, and then there were, you know, uh, SMS threads, texts, um, telegram threads with militia guys, again, recapping um, the highlights of his crimes and future ones he wanted to commit, also planning the crimes uh, in advance. So I don't know if I've ever seen so much digital evidence. And that's, it's a little uh, extreme, but it's not that unusual in these cases. You know, uh, at least 77% of these cases, according to the uh, George Washington University Project on Extremism, the arrests were made in part based on social media because, you know, most of these people were proud of what they were doing. So they, you know, they were there because they felt they had been called there by their president. And so they were videotaping themselves. They were posting online videos. They were boasting about it uh, beforehand and afterhand, just, just like um, him. So this isn't going to be completely unusual, although I do think the government was probably happy that with the draw here that this happened to be the first guy to go because, oh, and he also had, he was one of the very few that was, that actually brought a loaded firearm to the Capitol. Um, so that, that, that made his case unusual. So why did he go to trial here? Usually, you know, a competent defense lawyer faced with a client who is in fact guilty uh, of a number of felonies, whose felonies are well documented on all sorts of social media, electronic material, etc. Uh, to all you out there who are contemplating conspiracies, don't use Zoom for your conspiracies. It's a, you know, it's not a good platform for that. You know, he left a huge trail. And his son was willing to testify against him. Why, under those circumstances, does a competent defense lawyer let this go to trial? Well, as, as you know, the, it isn't the defense lawyer's final call. It's really the uh, defendant's call. And uh, some of these defendants are not terribly realistic. And um, he had actually been interviewed in the press once uh, on ABC. He had said this is, you know, through a call from jail to his uh, one of his daughters. And he said, this is going to be a simple case. Uh, it won't be hard to show that I didn't do anything. And uh, I know his wife was supportive. His wife was very surprised and angry about the outcome. So they live in a, a bit of a bubble uh, and and they're not being offered anything. You know, when the evidence is this strong, the government isn't saying, do you want to get a B misdemeanor? They're saying, uh, you know, I mean, I, I'm not there, but 
I know from the the people that did plead to these sorts of crimes are getting serious time uh, between 41 and 63 months so far. So that's, uh, you know, if you feel like, are you really willing to plead guilty when you're and 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 with him he's he's waited a long time i don't know if he would get such a good deal so um you know i guess there's just you you feel that you've got nothing to lose so what is he likely to get i mean the if you actually string together the maximum sentences on all of these offenses he could get you know dozens of years but that's actually not the way the guidelines work so what does a refit sentencing look like realistically? Yeah, the sentencing memos haven't been filed and and it's very hard to do the guideline computations. I just know that given that a lot of people with the, the similar crimes got, say, 44 month sentences with a guilty plea, which usually gets you sort of an offense severity reduction of three levels for purposes of the sentencing guidelines. You know, I I, I would think he's going to get five years or more, but that's just sort of a wild guess. Before we move on, are there other trials that are actually coming to coming to trial date in the near future? Yeah, there's a number of them in April. Unfortunately, there's one in in March that's not like that might not go as well. There's one uh next Monday, um the 21st. It's a bench trial, meaning no jury, and it's a misdemeanor and it's actually one of the lightest misdemeanors. Uh it's a guy I think his name is Cooey but he didn't even go in the building. Um, he was outside uh, on the steps with a bullhorn, um, which is still within restricted zone. Um, and so it's a class A misdemeanor. And most of those people pleaded guilty, but he refused to. And, and and there really aren't a lot. In fact, I only know of two misdemeanor cases that actually involve these are nonviolent cases where the person did not go in the Capitol. There are a lot of cases where people fought with the police and never got inside the Capitol. And those are very serious cases. All those guys out on the West Terrace near that archway you've seen, the, the really br- brutal fighting. But this guy was not involved in fighting. So he's actually become sort of a cause celeb in the in some communities, the uh, sort of... Uh, January 6th denialist community. And in fairness, uh, this is a light. He didn't do a lot. He he promised to do a lot of offensive things, uh, made a lot of offensive statements, including on TV, but those aren't crimes. And he's also going to go to trial before uh, Trevor McFadden, Judge Trevor McFadden, who has been the lightest sentencer in these cases, I would say he's maybe the most hostile to the January 6 cases. That's a little strong. Maybe it's too strong. But he is the one judge who has sort of entertained the notion that the, the attorney general is is treating these cases more harshly than he treated 
uh, the cases emanating from the Black Lives Matter rioting or, or from the uh, riots in Portland. In fact, he's actually said that he may give lighter sentences because of what he sees as a disparity. He is, an, he is a Trump appointee. So he is, uh, I don't know how that one's going to come out. That's going to be an interesting case. So we also last week had a major new indictment at the high end of the offense scale, a new conspiracy indictment. Tell us about Enrique Taro and the uh, the Proud Boys indictment. Yeah, Enrique Tario was the chairman of the Proud Boys at the time of the of the uh, insurrection, and so he was finally arrested and added to an existing conspiracy indictment of four other Proud Boys, the top, really the top Proud Boy officers, if you will. And then one additional Proud Boy was moved over into that indictment, a guy named Dominic Pezzola, who was the guy that broke out the first window through which the first rioters jumped in uh, on the Upper West Terrace. Um, Enrique Tario, we, it's not a complete surprise. He, uh, he had been quoted in some of the other Proud Boy conspiracy indictments, his social media entries, his um, telegram chat instructions. So, and he was called person one in some of the other Proud Boy indictments. So it's, but he wasn't present on January 6th. He came January 4th. He was arrested uh, for burning a Black Lives Matter flag in December at a, after a Stop the Steal rally. And he had had on him at that time two large uh, magazines. They were suitable for an AR-15 or an M4 rifle. And so he was arrested. And, and on January 5th, the judge released him but ordered him to leave D.C. And interestingly, before he left D.C., he did have a brief 30-minute meeting uh, in an uh, underground garage with uh, Stuart Rhodes, who's the uh, uh, head of the Oath Keepers. Uh, That was the night before the uh, January 6th with a few other people. And that's mentioned in this indictment. And uh, they allege that the word is that somebody brought up the Capitol in this short conversation. There isn't a lot known about that conversation, though. But what had been known beforehand was that he was involved in the planning and it was very it was very damning evidence at least you know we're still he hasn't been proven of anything but what he was doing was instructing them don't we're not going to wear our colors this time they'd have the proud boys have distinctive black and yellow colors they wear uh with a laurel symbol that's actually been sort of co-opted from Fred Perry, the uh, designer. So he wanted instead to mix in with the crowd and only they would know. And the implication was that they were going to incite the crowd and the crowd wouldn't realize that these were proud boys. They would just think, oh, these are other, you know, people like me that are just are fed up. 
And they played a rather uh, allegedly, you know, from the indictment, they played a crucial role. I mean, they were among the first to to topple barriers and to break through barriers and to and of course I, I mentioned Pozzolo broke out the first window with a stolen riot shield, and and about six Proud Boys were among the first to really to jump inside the building. Others broke out other what other doors. So the Proud Boys really played a crucial role. And so Tario is uh, finally been arrested. It, 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 he was charged with conspiracy. And I was a little surprised. He was also charged with aiding and abetting to do basically all of the crimes that the other guys are charged with, even though he wasn't in D.C., which um, some of which is a, a, seemed a little regressive. There, there was one new piece of evidence, one paragraph I thought was really intriguing, and I'll, I'll just read it if, if I can. It says that between December 30th and December 31st, so that's a week before the riot, Tario communicated multiple times with an individual whose identity is known to the grand jury. On December 30th, this individual sent Tario a nine-page document titled 1776 Returns. The document set forth a plan to occupy a few, quote, crucial buildings, unquote, in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, including House and Senate office buildings around the Capitol with, quote, as many people as possible to show our politicians we the people are in charge, unquote. After sending the document, the individual stated, the revolution is important than anything. So I, I think he meaning more important than anything. And Tario responded, that's why every waking moment consists of dot, dot, dot. Uh, that's what every waking moment consists of dot, dot, dot. I'm not playing games. But I, I hadn't heard about this nine-page document before. I, I suspect we'll be hearing more about that individual who, who wrote it. Interesting. So this is a a good transition to the question of political leadership. Merrick Garland was quoted last week by NPR once again, saying he was committed to uh, prosecuting all of those responsible for 1-6, irrespective of who they are or what positions they had. And they do seem to be working their way up the chain. Is there any sign that the investigation is yet focusing on political echelon type people? Well, I really don't see it yet. You know, there are little intriguing things like that. There was a, another development last week or, or the week before a an important oath keeper uh, Joshua James pled guilty, pled guilty to two of the top charges against him, including seditious conspiracy, and he was part of the detail uh, providing security to Roger Stone. But honestly, there is no reference to in the indictment or in his uh, in his statement of of offense accompanying his guilty plea that implicate or says anything about Stone. So I, I really don't see it uh, so far. I, I just don't see it in, at the criminal level. Obviously, the um, uh, select committee recently, 
the House Select Committee filed that civil brief in a case involving uh, Professor Eastman, um, in which it laid out a theory that Eastman Eastman had invoked attorney-client privilege to protect his emails. And uh, among many other reasons they said that wasn't applicable was the crime fraud exception. And they laid out a couple crimes they felt that Trump had likely committed. But that is the committee's view, not a reflection of where the investigation is. No, exactly. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes 
any personal information you don't want online and make sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So for those of you who are wondering about the background noise on when Roger is talking, <laughs> there is a construction going on in an apartment adjacent to the one uh, uh, that he is uh, living in. And so there is nothing we can do about it. And so let's just... Uh, you know, just enjoy the sounds of, of <laughs> light carpentry and, uh, you know, the virtual jungle studio has many guests, uh, in this case, including general contractors. Let's talk about the seditious conspiracy plea. This came rather quickly after there was a seditious conspiracy uh, indictment for the first time. You made reference to it a few moments ago. What do you think the significance of this is, and what does it tell us about uh, where the Justice Department is on the Oath Keepers and seditious conspiracy front? I think it's a very good sign for the Justice Department. Um, they've now got five guilty pleas of, of, from Oath Keepers involved in this conspiracy, uh, allegedly involved or I guess involved, <laughs> and he pled to the top charges, seditious conspiracy and uh, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. So those are both 20-year uh, felony maximums. The guidelines uh, for him, even with the guilty plea, are between 87 months and 108 months. So I'll help you there. That's seven and a quarter to nine years. So, and that's the, getting the benefit of pleading guilty. And he spent a lot of time with uh, Rhodes, Stuart Rhodes, Elmer Stuart Rhodes, the uh, leader of the Oath Keepers, who is the top defendant. And a Yale Law School graduate. Yes, right. So he uh, spent time with him beforehand and also afterwards, after these events. 
And it's an interesting statement of offense. Usually these, uh, when you plead guilty, you provide a little, there's a a written statement of offense where you admit to facts that are sufficient to prove the crime alleged. And, And typically they've been sort of minimalist and um, provide much less information than the criminal complaint did. This one is very long, and it provides additional information that wasn't in either the indictment uh, or the criminal complaint. And uh, so it's interesting that way. I, I don't know if that's a reflection of concern about making sure that the seditious conspiracy charge will stick and that uh, the judge would accept the plea, or if it's more a matter of trying to lock him in because they're a little worried that uh, he might, if when they call him to the stand, that he might try to wriggle out of it. But in any event, it's, 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 it has a lot of little interesting details. And, uh, and he spent a lot of time with Rhodes, and, uh, including almost a month after the event where uh, Rhodes had him go to Texas and uh, provide security, gave him a burner phone, told him to, uh, to develop a new identity, a new driver's license, change his appearance, gave him an AR-15, told him that um, he didn't want to be taken uh, basically without a fight and uh, accompanied Rhodes or helped him uh, buy thousands and thousands of dollars of of more weaponry uh, in preparation for uh, continuing resistance against uh, the inauguration or, if need be, the Biden administration. There was also uh, one detail I hadn't seen before about before before January 6th, where he said that um, Rhodes had instructed him and others to be prepared to patrol the perimeter of the White House and, and if asked, and to use lethal force if necessary to keep the National Guard or other gov- governor forces from, from removing Trump from the White House uh, as a result of the election. So that was a, a detail I hadn't seen before. So you mentioned that the plea includes obstructing an official proceeding, which is a good transition to uh, the fact that Judge Carl Nichols has rejected not this particular plea, but this uh, theory of liability in a different case. Uh, A bunch of judges as we've discussed, a bunch of judges have accepted it, some with more questions than others. This is the first district judge uh, in a January 6th context, or I think in any context, to say uh, the statute that the government is relying on doesn't reach the conduct that it is alleging. So uh, give us a little background on this. Uh, What is the controversy now that there there's a dispute among the district judges and what is the statute and what is the conduct that the government is trying to use it for? Yeah, this has become the most important charge, really, felony charge that they've used in the January 6th cases. It's 18 U.S.C. 1512 C. 2. Uh, It's called corruptly obstructing an official proceeding. 
And right now we've got more than 760 people charged in federal court for crimes arising out of January 6th, and 200, more than 280 of them are charged with this offense. I would say probably close to 90% of the felony charges, people charged with felonies are charged with this, among others. It's usually the top charge in terms of potential penalty. Well, it's always the top charge, except in the seditious conspiracy cases. So it's really, really important. Some of the celebrated uh, defendants in these cases have already pled guilty to solely that charge, including Jacob Chansley, who's the one uh, better known as the guy with the horns. Yeah, the shaman. He's he's the my shaman. hero. And uh, actually, four four of the uh, oath keepers who have pled guilty um, uh, pled to uh, not not Joshua James, but. Well, James did plead to one, but he also pled to seditious conspiracy. The other four pled only to this charge and conspiracy to commit this charge. So all of those would evaporate if uh, an appellate court accepted this opinion, uh, this reasoning. All of which strikes me as evidence that the government must be super confident of its reading in order to rely this heavily on it. No? Uh, well, I, I, I hope so. Um, there had been, you know, the, the charge raised eyebrows right from the start. I think what it is, is they don't want to charge people with insurrection, which is uh, politically explosive and, and has some different, different difficult elements to prove. And they were reluctant to go with seditious conspiracy. A lot of these cases aren't conspiracies. So th- this was their choice. And originally, it did get some raise some eyebrows because it comes from it was enacted in 2002 as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley law, which everyone thinks of as a financial, you know, something triggered certainly by concerns over the ability to prosecute financial crimes. It was passed in the wake of the Enron collapse. So early on, a couple judges before it had been briefed. Randolph Moss and Amit Mehta made comments from the bench. Gee, I'm a little concerned about this. They were mainly concerned in fairness about the intent element corruptly. But then once it had been briefed, the judges all seemed to be reassured. The first to green light it was Dabney Friedrich, who's a, a Trump appointee, and then uh, Moss and Mehta. And, and at this point, uh, 10 Ten judges have all uh, approved of it. Seven of them have written, you know, uh, written analyses. So it looked really solid. And then we got this ruling from Judge Nichols. Now, he doesn't really focus on the uh, corruptly element. He focuses on the word otherwise, actually, uh, which was a word that uh, some of the other judges had looked at. But um, he comes up with a very, very narrow interpretation. And it's not crazy. It's uh, plausible. And uh, the way he crafts it could appeal to some people on the Supreme Court. So it's it's a concern. I, it's still definitely a minority view. It comes to a, an incredibly narrow and crabbed uh, reading of a statute that on its face is is quite broad. Yeah, so I I want to argue that it is a little bit crazy. So can you read 
the statute, including C1, which is necessary to understand the the context that he's referring to. Yeah, yeah. So the, the statute is, it does have these two sections. And so part C begins, whoever corruptly, and then one alters, destroys, mutilates, or conceals a record, and I'll do some dot, dot, dots, with intent to impair the object's integrity or availability for use in an official proceeding, or, and then two, otherwise obstructs, influences, or impedes any official proceeding. So he focuses on this word otherwise, and he says, well, we need to give it some meaning. So it could mean either that section one is sort of a a subcategory of section two, that section two is broader, but he says, no, I'm not going to, I don't think so, because you don't really need section one in that event. And so then he comes up with the theory that section two has to be similar crimes to alters, destroys, and mutilates a record. So he says, you know, he, he says that's all it means then is, is very similar, like falsifying a record or other ways of acting upon a record to make it unavailable. And that is a far cry from what Section 2 says. Yeah, I want to suggest that it is not a plausible reading. And uh, having benefited from none of the briefing in any of these cases, (laughs) uh, here is my alternative reading. There is, prior to Sarbanes-Oxley, this C-1, and Congress sees all kinds of- No, no, no. These are both parts of Sarbanes-Oxley. Ah, ah, sorry. Okay. So uh, Congress passes C-1 to describe physical destruction of property or physical destruction of or alteration of records, and C-2 to describe- other forms of obstructing proceedings uh, that do not involve physical destruction uh, or alteration of records. In other words, if you obstruct a proceeding by mutilating a document, that is covered by C1. But if you obstruct a proceeding by barging in and corruptly forcing, say, threatening to hang the vice president unless you get what you want. Uh, That's not going to be covered by that section. We have a different section for that. And so I think the otherwise means precisely, if if Congress had meant to say similarly, it could have used a word like similarly or in some like fashion. It's not talking about some like fashion. It's talking about some different fashion, no? No. Yes, this, and that's the way Judge Randolph Moss read it, which I, I agree is, is a more sensible way to read it. I think that what Judge Nichols can say in his defense is that there is this Supreme Court case called Begay versus United States, and that's, that's part of what he's relying on, and that involved in interpretation of a of the word otherwise 
and there they the majority and it was a split ruling it was and not split on the normal political lines but five judges in that case uh read the the passage after otherwise to be sort of similar to the first three but i think what what's missing is that the the context of that it was a construction of a it's one of these statutes where you'll get a 15 year mandatory sentence if you uh have possession of unlawful possession of a weapon and you've got been convicted of a previous violent felony or certain other crimes and the question was is a DUI a violent felony and and i think the you know five justices were thinking you really you're going to send a guy to mandatory 15 years for DUI and and so they were grasping at straws a little bit i, I you know that's what i think was happening it, it's called the armed career criminal act and uh they don't really say that you must always interpret otherwise this way they they say specifically that they aren't saying that so that's that's the basis for him uh interpreting it this way judge nichols but uh i mean i think you're right that most people would not at most people that aren't most people that aren't on the spring court now, i i think if this gets to the spring court i think it's a anybody's guess what happens so what's your sense of what the justice department does with this one thing they could do is nothing and you know the decision is not doesn't bind anybody uh it's just a district court opinion they've got 10 on their side so you could just not appeal it let this charge fall out of this case and you know protect your reading of the statute that way you could also take the position hey we're going to have to litigate this at some point uh in the DC circuit because somebody's going to get convicted of this on direct uh on at trial in fact i think uh uh, Mr. Uh, Refit already did, and he's presumably going to appeal. And so we're going to end up with this in the D.C. Circuit anyway. We may as well take it up ourselves. What do you think the Justice Department does here? I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that's what they should do. And I, more, I, I asked this question of Barbara McQuaid in, in my story and and she thought they ought to take it up for exactly that reason it's going to get there it's it's crucial if this is not going to work if the supreme court is not going to let it go they then they need to start charging something else so i i think that's the answer but it, he, he this particular defendant garrett miller uh does have um i think 11 other charges including five other felonies so it's conceivable they could just go forward. Proceed without him. Yeah. But but tell me, if if they were to take it up and the D.C. Circuit were to side with the government, would there be a circuit split such that the Supreme Court would feel obliged to hear it or have other circuits looked at this question and what side are they on to the extent they have? The Eighth Circuit has looked at this question, obviously outside the context of a non-capital riot case, and they approved it against 
the specific argument that uh, uh, Judge Nichols makes. The Ninth Circuit has also approved a 1512 C2 case that didn't involve a record, although they didn't comment on this issue. I'm not aware of any circuit that has accepted this. It's it's 10 district judges that have gone the other way, plus the Eighth Circuit. Yeah, so that's interesting. So if they prevailed at the D.C. Circuit, they would be, the D.C. Circuit's opinion would be harmonious with the Eighth Circuit's opinion, and the Supreme Court could actually duck it on that basis. Right, if they wanted to duck it. Right. <laughs> well, so before we wrap, what are the uh, major events upcoming in 1-6 criminal accountability land over the next few weeks? What are, what are we looking at? Well, we do have, I, I mentioned that odd misdemeanor bench trial coming up, but then in, in April, we have a lot of trials. Of course, a lot of these uh, at the last minute get pushed off. So it's a little hard to predict, and uh, but we're. I think that we're going to. That we might get one where somebody is going to try to make some sort of formal or semi-formal or, or informal claim that uh, it's Trump's fault, and uh, that's why I'm not guilty. Uh, there are formal ways to try to do that. There's something called a public authority defense and something called entrapment by estoppel. That would be the formal way to do it. There might be ways to sneak it into your either your uh, opening or your summation, uh, ways to imply it. Uh, but I think that uh, at least one of those cases coming up next month, the defendant wants to go that route. Judges have not been very receptive to that so far. Yeah, the president made me do it defense is going to be a tough one. And yeah. it's going to be a tough one. And even if a judge lets it through, it's going to be a tough one in front of a DC jury. We are going to leave it there. Roger Parloff, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the great Hamza Shatu of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to support the Lawfare Podcast. So if you are not already a material supporter of Lawfare, please become one at patreon.com slash lawfare. That's patreon.com slash lawfare. You can join our Lawfare live events. You can get an ad-free version of this podcast. It's a great thing. Just do it. You know you've been thinking about it. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.